Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Welcome, everybody. Hey, good morning. Got a great message for you this morning directly from heaven. And we're all going to be blessed. Uh... A few Wednesdays ago, yeah, uh, yep, well, that didn't work. Okay, no. Yes, open your mouth, you'll feel it. A few Wednesdays ago, as I've mentioned, practically every time I've been in the pulpit since then, I shared with you a, a, a sense of urgency uh, and a motivation to believe God for the miraculous, right? In our midst and out there. This was kind of... Uh, the idea being to adopt, a, I guess, a more aggressive posture when it comes to believing for these things, not just acknowledging that they happen, but expecting them. And what can we do to cultivate that uh, in our lives? Expecting to see God move in powerful ways. And it really it kind of uh, emerged from our series that we just wrapped up last week, Take a Good Look, and specifically the second message, which was looking down. Looking down was about what? It was about Satan, the enemy, demonic forces. And we looked at the passage in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sent the 70 out, and they went out two by two, and they came back rejoicing, saying, What, Master, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And his response was, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, I did not develop that that morning. We went on to some other stuff. But the following Wednesdays when we talked about that, he's not talking, Jesus was not, I am perfectly convinced that when Jesus said that, he was not recalling, ah, yes, I remember it was thousands of years ago and I saw heaven, I saw Satan being kicked out of heaven and falling to the earth like lightning. No, he's referring to what the disciples just said, the coming down, the falling down of the reign of the king of this world and the rise of the kingdom of God. And how it was happening now, as soon as Jesus commissioned those disciples to go out and do what? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. He said, I saw Satan fall. How did he fall? Like lightning from heaven. Fast. And this is what he's proclaiming. The, the new king. Kingdom of God in our midst. And this, this authority, as these disciples were walking it out, was, was theirs as emissaries of the king of heaven. So I was fired up about this idea, the Great Commission, healing the sick, casting out demons, continuing this mission, and expecting miracles, because miracles were certainly a part of what the disciples did, these early disciples. And I want to remind you, there were 70. We're going to talk this morning, start talking about this idea of uh, the role of the miracle. What is the miracle for? We're going to spend three weeks talking about this. And the reason is, as I mentioned last week, uh, and probably the Wednesday before at least, it was like the next day, within two days of this exciting, for me, there was kind of this churning message on a Wednesday night about believing for the miraculous, I get a call from Kevin and Annie wanting to come in. And I normally would have just said no, because three weeks later, we've already got Bob Yandian scheduled. And, uh, but the timing of it, 
was very interesting because he's telling me in very excited tones just how many miracles they have seen uh, recently in their ministry and that this is what they focus on. It's not like, well, we don't know what we're going to do when we get there. If the Lord leads, we'll have a healing service. Otherwise, we'll just teach. No, it's like we are coming there to minister in miraculous healings. This is what we do. This is where God is using us now. In this season, we are, and we are seeing notable miracles. So I thought, yes, I believe this is God. And so we've got a choice to make. I've got a choice to make. As pastor, we could dive into 1 Timothy. And uh, we are. We'll finish the Bible. We'll get through that. It's important that we do that. I know not everybody's as excited about that as I am because you hate the Bible and I love it. But no, I'm kidding. I know that's not it. But... There are three weeks between now and when Kevin and Annie get here. And we could, we could talk about, the Bible's good. We're going we're gonna to be blessed no matter what we look at as long as we're looking at the scripture. I just felt strongly, uh, and I believe the Lord is leading me to feel this way, to sense this, that a better use of, our, of the intervening three weeks is to prepare ourselves to till some soil, to cultivate an atmosphere for the miraculous. You know... You've heard it in this church, and every good pastor reminds his people from time to time. And this is an excuse for bad preaching. I mean, it's probably used as an excuse for bad preaching. I've never used it as an excuse for bad preaching because I don't preach bad sermons. I preach good sermons. But no matter how good the message is, no matter how good the praise and worship is, what you, how you grow, what you get out of a service has an awful lot to do with how you came into the service at least as much as what's coming from the pulpit, from the platform. What did you do last night to cultivate, to prepare your heart for now, for this service? Because if you didn't prepare your heart, you're not going to get as much out of it, no matter how good it is, as somebody who prepared their heart. Well, what do you mean prepare your heart? Well, it's not rocket science. Did you go to bed early? Or did you stay up till 3 in the morning and drag yourself out of bed so you're physically tired? That's not preparing your heart. Yeah, that's part of it. Making a priority out of it. What can I do on Saturday night to prepare myself for Sunday morning? Even though you're, well, I'm not serving. I don't have to prepare. Prepare yourself. Prepare your heart to receive the word of God. You know, a farmer doesn't just go out there and throw seeds on the hard ground. Got to cultivate that soil. So anyway, thought that's what we ought to do between now and when the Durants get here. So that we receive the maximum benefit from their ministry, from their giftings. Can I get an amen? All right, so I'll agree. Now, um, since we're bringing in a ministry that essentially specializes in miracle healings, um, let's look at the question of the miracle. Uh, Is there something we can do, again, to cultivate an atmosphere? And I don't want to get too uh, woo-woo about that word, so I'll explain it a little bit later. And we'll do more to answer that next week, but we will talk about it this week to prepare this uh, atmosphere for the miraculous. And I want to look today at miracles in the Old Testament. Next week, we will look specifically at the miracles Jesus did. And the third week, we will look at the miracles done in the Bible after the ascension. So the miracles done by the early church. And that's the age we live in, right? The church age. So I'm going to share first a quote with you that I disagree with. Uh, most of you know how much I love Ravi Zacharias. I just, I, he resonates with me. I love his teaching. Uh, he's big on apologetics. Um, 
but that doesn't mean, I quote him probably more than I do anybody outside the Bible, except with the, with the possible exception of C.S. Lewis. Uh, but that doesn't mean I agree with everything he says. And he said this, uh, heard, it, heard him say this years ago, that the whole role of the miracle in the Old and New Testament is as an apologetic. Meaning this is what the miracle is for. It's simply to confirm that God is God. It's to confirm the authority of the speaker. And uh, Ravi, thankfully, is not a cessationist. He does not believe that miracles have ceased. He's a Christian Missionary Alliance guy, and they, don't, they believe, and they're continu- uh, continuous. But this is the default position of most cessationists. And a cessationist is simply one who believes the gifts of the Spirit have ceased and that miracles are no longer in operation. And they, they will say this not because they disbelieve the Bible, but because they misinterpret the Bible. Because they believe miracles happened, they just don't believe they happen anymore. And they say, I'm going to read you this. I didn't add, this is where the, that's how far I got into writing this thing before things kind of went crazy. And I copied and pasted this article that I wanted to edit. And I could not edit it because my computer did what it did. Now, uh, but let me, so let me read, and I'll just try to edit as I read it. Um, when we, and this is from the article. When we think about miracles in the New Testament, we often consider the miracles of Christ in the gospel accounts. There are, however, many miracles recorded in the book of Acts. A survey of these miraculous works is worthy of our reflection. Remember, Jesus revealed to his disciples that they would have the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, after the Lord returned to heaven. Their teaching was to be inerrant and sufficient, and they would have the divine corroboration of supernatural works. Thereby, hearers of the apostolic message could have confidence in what they heard. They relied upon the apostolic preaching as being from God. The miracles provided objective, indisputable testimony concerning the gospel message. Now, let me tell you, as if you just take what he has said, that's true. Jesus himself pointed to the fact that the signs he did served as signs, that the miracles he did did, in fact, corroborate, provided testimony to the authenticity of his message. Where I take issue is, I don't believe that was the primary purpose of the miracle. And it certainly wasn't the only purpose of the miracle. That is clearly demonstrated in Scripture, as you'll see today. So then he goes through... uh, and lists a number of miracles in the book of Acts, starting with the visible appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, the uh, ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by the miraculous wind, fire, and speaking in tongues. Uh, Many miracles were performed by the apostles. Peter healed the lame man at the temple. God answered Peter in a miraculous earthquake. Ananias and Sapphira were slain by the Lord. Signs and wonders continued to be done by the apostles. Peter healed many from various cities. Uh, the prison doors were opened by an angel. Stephen wrought great wonders and signs in Samaria. Philip did great miracles and signs. Guess what? Stephen and Philip were not apostles. This is important because the, one of the foundations of his argument, and many, again, who are cessationists, I know Philip was an apostle. This is a different Philip, all right? Uh, is that it was all about uh, authenticating apostolic authority. You had the apostles who were founding churches, who were 
the arbiters of correct doctrine. And in order, God's stamp of approval was the miraculous in their lives. And so they limited it to the apostles. Some will go on to say, well, it was mainly the apostles, but the main thing, it was the apostolic age. But that's nothing more than hedging your bet, in my opinion. Uh, but he's, he's talking about the apostles that did great things. And then he mentions specific things about Stephen and Philip, who, by the way, weren't apostles. So, uh, the Lord appeared to Saul, but Saul is unsaved until he responds to the preaching of the gospel by Ananias. Ananias healed Saul's blindness. Peter healed Aeneas. In Joppa, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Cornelius saw an angel. He and his family spoke in tongues. Uh, He was saved by responding to the preaching of the gospel by Peter. Peter saw the vision on the roof and spoke with the Lord. A prison gate was miraculously opened. Paul blinded Elymas. Uh, Paul performed miracles at Iconium. At Lystra, Paul healed a crippled man. Paul healed a woman possessed by evil spirit. List more and more miracles by Paul. In Ephesus, 12 men spoke in tongues. As we can see, as he wraps this up, if one were to demythologize the book of Acts, as those of a liberal bent are wont to do, much would be missing concerning the amazing growth and development of the early church. In fact, we would have a difficult time explaining how so many Greeks, Romans, and barbarians obeyed the gospel. Is it rational to think that Paul is going to walk onto some island in the Mediterranean and convert many people simply because he is convincing or friendly? Or was there some other reason? To the contrary, they observed indisputable deeds that confirmed the message of the gospel. In case after case, many believed the message that was confirmed by the miracles. This is one reason for the amazing success that the gospel enjoyed in the first century. I agree. Paul went and preached, and then he said, hey, when I came to you, it wasn't with great uh, wisdom of, of words. It wasn't with eloquence of speech. It was with power and the Holy Spirit, right? He did signs and wonders. Absolutely agree that God confirmed his words. But then he says this, the confirmation that goes along with our preaching today is the completed revelation of God. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians, doesn't quote, he just cites 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10, which is where it says, when that which is perfect has come. Remember this? This is right in the middle of the gifts, and we'll talk more about this next week and the week after. I'm just giving you some background here. Now we appeal to the written record of these events, and we are privileged to possess the completed, final revelation of God's will. Let me ask you this. Now, let me start preface what I'm about to say by saying this. I do believe in the transforming power of the word of God. The Bible is a supernatural book. All right? But are you going to tell me that you can go into a foreign land and then just convince people any more than Paul could? Paul wasn't preaching in a vacuum. He was preaching the scriptures. He just didn't have all the scriptures that we had. He preached the scriptures and God authenticated it with signs, with miracles, with healings. Why is it unreasonable to think that God still does that? Now, I'm not even getting into, we will, mostly not today. Well, we will. We'll just look at different stories today. Same point. What I'm trying to get you to understand is, I believe there's a different primary purpose for the miracle. But the miracle, the signs, the wonders, they certainly do authenticate the word of God. But we still, if if this is his argument, that the main and really only reason for the miracle was the authentication of the speaker, the authentication of the ministry, the word of God, then we still need that. 
You're going to go in there with a Bible to a foreign land. They're not just going, okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a new word. That's something we haven't heard before. I guess we'll believe it. God is still big in the signs and wonders in the authentication business. Okay? So I, I just, I'm saying it's, it's kind of a silly argument to say they had miracle signs and wonders and we have the whole Bible. Not that the whole Bible is, is something to be scoffed at. I'm so glad we had the whole Bible. But the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God there, in terms of basing all of our doctrine, sola scriptura, should not replace the miracle, but give us more uh, reason to believe for and believe in the miraculous. All right? Now, there's a great quote here that I've often shared about, and probably should have saved this for next week, but I'm going to share it with you now in case... My iPad dies too. Uh, it's from George MacDonald, who was a Scottish theologian and preacher and an inspiration to many Christian writers over the years, notably Chesterton, Lewis, and others. But he said this, The miracles of Jesus were the ordinary works of his Father, wrought small and swift, that we might take them in. The miracles of Jesus were the ordinary works of his Father, wrought small and swift, so we might take them in. In other words, why did Jesus heal? Why did he do healing miracles? Because this is what God did. God is a healing God. And Jesus worked them fast. He worked them instantaneously so that we could see them. But God is a healing God and healing flows from heaven. So anyway, let's look at some, uh, this is not by any means an exhaustive list, but it's a long list. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, name several miracles and you can jot these down if you want. I don't have the scripture references. This is this was all my quick manual recovery of the of the sermon I lost on the computer. But I want you to think about the miracles that I'm going to talk about. And each one of them, I'm going to ask you, did this particular miracle serve as an apologetic? Did it demonstrate or authenticate something? Did it, and some of them did. Uh, but let's start with um, uh, the rod, Moses' rod, or Aaron's rod. Remember when he took it before Pharaoh and threw it on the ground and it turned to a snake? Did that authenticate something? Did that serve as an apologetic? Yes, it did. The plagues in Egypt. What was the primary purpose of the plagues? Did it... Did it serve the purpose, successfully, of opening the eyes of Pharaoh and most of the Egyptians to the truth of Jehovah? It did not. I'm talking about the whole series of plagues. What was it for? It was to get God's people out of Egypt, to provide for them a miraculous escape from the power of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, The parting of the Red Sea, did that serve as an apologetic? Did it serve as an authentication Uh, to Moses' authority? No. What was its primary purpose? To escape the Egyptian army. Um, The healing healing of the the bitter waters at Marah. Did God say, I'm going to heal these waters to again show you that Moses is my prophet? Or did he do that because the people were dying of thirst and needed water? He met a need, right? Uh, The manna from heaven. Obviously, it's feeding his people. Water from the rock, again, quenching their thirst. Aaron's rod that budded, that's an apologetic. That's a sign from heaven that this is the one I've chosen. The brazen serpent, 
That was a healing. That, who was that for? That was for the healing of his children who were being bitten by the snakes. Uh, the parting of the Jordan River when they went into the land of promise. A way for them to get where they were going. Not a sign. Um, the fall of Jericho. Same thing. This is the God providing the victory and fulfilling his promise, bringing his people into the land that he had given them. The sun and the moon standing still. Was this a sign for the enemy or was this a provision specifically in answer to prayer of Joshua? He used to ask, hey, God, I need some more daylight so I can finish killing these guys. Answer to prayer. There was, there was also that cool story where they, had, uh, where they took the ark into the tent or into the temple and set it next to the image of Dagon and Dagon fell over. Remember that? I think that happened twice. That was an apologetic. That was a sign. <laughs> Yeah, my God's bigger than your God. So now we've got three out of more than ten that actually served as an apologetic. Now we get, uh, here's, here's, uh, here's three miracles from Elijah. The oil and flour uh, being replenished. Was that a sign? Or was that a reward for the, for the uh, woman who used the last of her oil and flour to make a cake for Elijah? Raising of the widow's son. Why did he do that? Because she sought him out and asked him for a miracle. Uh, here's, here's a great, this is probably the premier example of miracle as apologetic. Jehovah versus Baal on Mount Carmel. You build an altar, I'll build an altar, and we'll see which God answers by fire. Clearly, this is God saying, yes, I'm the one. And obviously authenticates Elijah's uh, prophetic ministry at the same time. Elisha and the widow's oil that never ran out. This was simply a a, a miracle of provision for the widow. Um, Raising the widow's son. or Yeah, the the oil that got poured out until all of her vessels were full. Raising of the widow's son. Same thing. Um, uh, Or the Shunammite son. We got the, the poison stew. Remember that, oh, there's death, there's death in the pot. They put some poison gourds in there, and so uh, Elisha healed the stew. What was this for? This was just for the prophets. These were already believers. This wasn't an apologetic for anybody. Uh, the axe head that floated. They were chopping down some trees, and the axe head flew off, and they're like, oh, no, man of God, we lost the axe head, and it wasn't even ours. It was borrowed. So Elisha throws something in the water, and the axe head floats to the top, and they retrieve it. Why? So he could be for a sign to all the people who were peeking through the bushes? No, this was just to meet an immediate need for God's people already. The Syrian army being smitten blind. Jonah uh, and the whale, or the fish. The Bible calls them both, and that means, according to God, whale is a fish. Jonah, uh, was, was what happened to him an apologetic? Kind of. I think this was more, that was more for Jonah than it was for anybody else. The, remember when the sundial went back 10 degrees? That served as, as an apologetic because he'd gotten the word that, that he was going to be healed and this was an authentication. So we've got another one. The fiery furnace uh, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was both. But even in that case, I want you to see that there was, that the, and we'll come back to this, there was a confession of faith on the part of the Hebrew children who were in that fiery furnace. Daniel in the den of lions. Did God shut their mouths? To prove something to Darius? No. Darius already knew that Daniel was of God. Daniel, Darius, I believe, was a believer. But he got duped by his advisors into throwing Daniel into the den of lions. And, the, and he survived for Daniel's sake. God kept Daniel alive. 
uh, and the writing on the wall, yep, that probably served as an authenticating miracle. So we've got the vast majority of Old Testament miracles, which were done, by and large, for the people of God. This was God simply acting on behalf of the people he had already made promises to. And in some cases, there is a secondary application where it serves as an apologetic, as an authentication. And then in just one or two cases, specifically God versus Baal on Mount Carmel, uh, where it is that really does seem to be the whole point of the miracle is to show that God is God and God's man is God's man. Now, and, and I left several out, but that's a pretty good sampling. If the role of the miracle was to serve as an apologetic to confirm the word of God, let me ask you this. Why didn't Jeremiah perform a miracle or two? I want you to think back to his message. This was, he was preaching right before they were carried into captivity. And he's telling them this. Meanwhile, there were competing prophecies. You had other people saying, thus saith the Lord, I would never allow Babylon to come carry you away. Uh, I will rescue you. Uh, and just all this good news, good news, good news. And they'd go to Jeremiah, what do you think? Well, where the Lord is, uh, pack your bags and prepare to stay for, set for a long time. You're going to be there for generations. They didn't like to hear that. Now, naturally, they wanted to gravitate toward the ones who were giving them good news. So why couldn't Jeremiah simply do a miracle and say, hey, look who's right? But he didn't. That's not the primary role of the miracle. Could God have authenticated his word by doing a miracle through Jeremiah? He could have. But the main thing was, this was they're going to see this come to pass anyway. If you, if, you, if you will, the miracle was simply the fulfillment of the prophecy. You'll see who's right when it happens. And God wasn't going to be talked out of it at this point. There, has, there had been mercy and mercy and mercy. And God said, this time, it's not a change or else judgment is coming. It's judgment is coming. Now, uh, looking back over that list, I also see this, and I mentioned this. It was God, in the vast majority of these cases, doing things for his people, for his children. But also, in many of those that were... uh, except for the ones that were done for proof, and really kind of including those, all of them involved faith. Or at least a prayer, a request, a specific request. It wasn't just God showing up and saying, surprise, miracle. For instance, water from the rock. The people were crying out for water. We're thirsty. And as they cried, and remember, the Israelites really weren't in the habit, and I'm talking during their, the 40 years between the Exodus and the time when they actually entered the land of promise. They really weren't known for their stability of faith. What, did they, how, what form did their request take most often? Complaining, whining. So it wasn't Moses We trust God, and we believe he has a plan for us. But we need water. Where would God have us get water? No, what was it? The 
Could you bring us out here in the desert to kill us of thirst? We lived by a river in Egypt. And Moses goes to God and God says, take that stick and strike the rock. Now you're Moses and you've seen some things. So it's probably not a big stretch. But if Moses had struck the rock and nothing happened, it's a pretty dramatic moment. And you'd look pretty silly. There's some obedience involved here is what I'm saying. Moses had to do something to activate the miracle in the presence of the Israelites. It wasn't just people whined and then God made it rain. He spoke to Moses and Moses had to strike the rock. And we see this again and again where uh, a great, maybe one of the greatest examples of Old Testament faith is uh, the flour and oil. When Elijah goes to the widow's house and says, you have any uh, flour and oil? Can you make me something to eat? She says, I have just enough flour and oil to make one cake of bread. I was going to make it, feed it to my son and me right before we die because that's it. We're dead after that's gone. And Elijah says, "Just, just make one for me first. First? There's only first. I only have the first cake left. Just make it for me. And because she did that, because she obeyed, what was the miracle she experienced? An endless supply of flour and oil to last throughout the drought, last throughout the famine. So, what is... Let me back up here, and I've got to be real careful here not to name names because I don't want to disparage anybody. But I have a, a, a clear memory of a conversation with a guy from years ago who... Uh, wanted to come in and speak, but then he also wanted to bring in a particular uh, musician because this musician would create an atmosphere for miracles. He just flowed better with this particular singer, piano player, whatever he was, because it's important that we create an atmosphere for the miraculous. Now, if you just want to say, hey, I've, I've worked with this guy before and I'm comfortable with this music, I would rather you just say that because it's Straight for me, I have, a hard time, I have a hard time balancing that with Scripture to say that I have to have a certain person playing a certain music to create an atmosphere. Because then the word atmosphere means an ambiance or even a mood. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about creating an atmosphere for miracles. So we've got to be very careful in word of faith circles, charismatic circles, that we don't get spooky about this stuff. When I talk about creating an atmosphere for miracles, I'm not talking about the lighting. I'm not talking about the music. Okay? What is the atmosphere for miracles? It's faith. And it's obedience. The faith, by faith, I don't mean just a, whatever, God, I trust you. It's an active expectation for the miraculous. Do you think that the multitudes, and I'm getting ahead of myself, it's so hard to stick to this when I'm looking forward to uh, the miracles of Jesus, but you know the multitudes came out to be healed. But they also, they went out to hear him. They said they, they, they listened, they followed him because he taught as one having authority not as one of the scribes and the Pharisees. So they responded to his teaching. But they also went to him with their sick. And everything about these passages indicates to me that they expected him to heal them. 
It wasn't like, well, let's wait and see. We've tried everything else. What do we got to lose? They went, they thronged around him because they knew. There was this expectation. But, with, but there's also this element of obedience. I've said this before. I believe it's been a while since I have. That the highest expression of our faith is obedience. Highest expression of faith is obedience. You know, uh, it says, the Bible tells us, Moses happened to write this part, but it says that Moses was a very humble man, more so than anybody else on the earth. He was the most humble man. But we have to remember that humility doesn't mean weak, doesn't mean wimpy. Humility equals submission, obedience. Pride is so much more than haughtiness. Biblical pride is rebellion, defiance, disobedience. The miracle workers of the Old Testament had to step out in faith. They had to do some things that might have looked actually risky in order to see some of those miracles. Now, our confession is important. If we are going to believe and expect to see these things, we have to say them. We have to make sure that our words line up with God's words. That's the number one way we activate the miraculous in our lives. But our life of obedience is also vital. We will develop the atmosphere of, uh, this atmosphere of faith thing next week when we look at the miracles of Jesus. Meanwhile, I want you to remember a couple things. Uh, like Pastor Mike said earlier today, this isn't just about you coming to get a miracle. This is about you going out there and doing miracles. That's what I was fired up about on that Wednesday night when Jesus taught his disciples. When he sent them out, did he go out there and say, hey, go out there and believe God to do something for you? No, go out there and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And so we, it's, we can certainly believe that it's going to happen in here. And most of us, most of us probably can point to something in our lives that would certainly benefit from some miraculous intervention. But if it's not, if you're in that place where, thank God, I'm in a season of life where my body is healthy, my family's healthy, my finances are great, my relationships are whole, I don't need a miracle right now. You come anyway and be encouraged, be fed, be uh, um, exhorted to go out there and do the miracles that Jesus told us to do. This we're going to have an impact on the world that way. But we have to back up and look at this and say, all right, here's the connection. Moses, who was the, one of the great miracle-working prophets, he was the, the prophet, right? Uh, the ones that, by the time Jesus uh, came around, they were looking for Elijah, they were looking for the Messiah, and they were looking for the prophet. And the prophet and the Messiah were really the same thing. They didn't, they didn't quite have that uh, figured out. But the prophet was the one that was supposed to be a prophet like Moses. He was the gold standard for prophets. And Moses was humble, humble. He was known primarily for his obedience. This is, the, this is what hum, humility looks like, is I'm going to do what you tell me to do, not what I think I want to do. And in fact, one time, 
It tells us, you know, the second time they needed water, and God said, speak to this rock. Just like he'd told them earlier to strike this rock. And what did Moses do? You rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? And strikes it. After a lifetime of obedience. This guy lived 120 years. And because of that one moment of pride, it cost him going into the land of promise. Because the one with that much, that much anointing, that much responsibility, that much uh, authority is, is called to a higher standard. Now, I'm not, this is again going back to the communion message. Don't freak out and don't get into fear over legalism. Well, I can never get a miracle then because I have not walked. If Moses is going to not get his reward because he sinned one time, what hope do I have? Number one, Moses was Old Testament. Moses was under the law. We are not. Is there a righteousness connection? There is. Miracles, the people that God did miracles for were his people. The promises he made were for the righteous. Thank God it's the same deal for us. The miracles and the promises are for the righteous. But where is our righteousness? It's in Jesus Christ. What is my righteousness? It's the righteousness, the only righteousness that's worth anything to me is the righteousness that I have been clothed with because of the blood of Jesus. All right? I'm under no illusion about my, uh, no illusions about my flaws. But it does, it should cause us to think, all right, uh, Kind of goes back to the communion message. It's not a matter of, I must do these things to get my miracle. It's a matter of, God loves me enough to make the miraculous available to me. And I know he loves me that much because he loves me even more. He loves me enough to give his only begotten son to die in my place. And if he loves me that much, and he's made his will clear, am I kidding myself by saying, uh, Yeah, I really love him too. But I won't stop doing the things that I know he wants me to stop doing. That I won't do the things that I know he wants me to do. Can we honestly examine our lives and say, have I ever really tried giving this thing to God? Have I ever submitted this? Have I ever confessed it as sin? Or have I ever just looked at it and said, well, it's just the way I am. I'm flawed. I'm broken. Can't do anything about it. I'm not saying it's easy. Especially if, you're, if, we're, if we're dealing with something that's a habit or an addiction or something like that. But there is deliverance promised for us. But I'm also talking about the simple commands. Bearing one another's burdens. Praying for one another. Encouraging one another. Loving one another. S- clear commands where you can look and say, All right, God has told me to do this and I'm really not doing it. And it's not a matter then of, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to tithe. I'm not doing it, but hey, nobody does everything right. And you're going to take something simple like money to stand in the way of, of you in obedience? Now, I'm not saying God says, you start tithing and I'll give you the miracle. That's not, what I, that's not the connection between righteousness and the miracle. That's not the connection between obedience and the miracle. The connection is this. What is the highest expression of faith? Is it our confession? No. Is it our praise? Getting closer, but no. It's our obedience. And we can say we believe 
in that miracle as much as we want. But if we really believe, our belief will be demonstrated by our obedience. We might even, it's just like we used to ask these kids all the time in youth group. Do you really love Jesus? Yeah, I do. I know I love him. But you're not obeying him. And I'd be, I'm talking about something specific I'd confront him on. Yeah, but you're not doing this. Yeah, I know. But he knows I love him anyway. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He gives us commandments. Tells us what to do. And his commandments aren't burdensome. You're, you know you're obeying a command of Christ being here today? And yet I trust and believe that most of you are here today just because you love him. And you love his body. You love his people. It's not of, well, I'd sure rather not go to church, but I've got to obey God. His commands are not burdensome. And yet there is a command. We want a good way to find out if you're really in faith. And you could really be confessing strong and believing strong for a miracle. But it's one faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I have faith for, I have faith for uh, healing, but I don't have faith for obedience. Yeah, you do. You got one faith. Exercise your faith in obedience just like you do for the miracle, for the need being met, for the healing. We will continue. Stand up with me. We will continue next week with the miracles of Jesus. (sighs) Meanwhile, again going back to the communion message, reflect this week in your time of prayer on the death of Christ as an expression of his great and deep love for you. And let that launch you into a deeper, more committed love for him. That will translate into obedience and that makes faith for the miracle easier. And remember... We will be known to the world by our love for one another. We will experience the love of God as we experience the miraculous in our lives. But true servant Christianity is focused on the needs of others. I do want to receive miracles in my life. But my real motivation for the miraculous in my life really should be, I want to go out and be a minister of God's power in the lives of other people. I want to be able to go up with, to somebody in confidence and say, you be healed in Jesus' name. I notice you're limping. I'm just going to speak. It takes a lot of boldness. All right? And again, we got to be careful with this because even Jesus didn't go in. He didn't go out and seek all the sick people out. He healed everybody that came to him. But there were miracles, and there was still the command. And Jesus said, hey, look, some people will reject you. Kick the dust off your feet, feet, tell them you had a chance. Kingdom of God came near to you. And go to the ones who receive you. And the ones who receive you, guess what? Cast out their demons, heal their sick, raise their dead, cleanse the lepers. Just get permission to pray for somebody. Speak over their lives. And let's do it with confidence. Amen? It's going to be an exciting time. It's going to be an exciting year. And that's just going to be the beginning of great things. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.